Corey Mintz is a chef and food critic turned freelance journalist focused on the intersection between what we eat with business, politics, farming, ethics, labor, and more. He's an explorer whose findings have been shared in New York Times, Globe and Mail, Eater, and others. In today's episode, we discuss his new book, The Next Supper, the end of restaurants as we knew them and what comes after. Let's get into it. Welcome to Guest Getter, the best place for restaurateurs to learn the art and science of getting more new guests, getting guests coming back more often, and getting guests spending more per visit so that you can be more profitable and do more of what you love. My name's Kyle Guilfoyle. Let's hit it. Corey, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm terrific, Kyle. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Corey, you wear many hats, uh, food writer, restaurant critic, dinner party host. But I want to know, how would you describe your particular area of expertise or your zone of genius? Well, those are all former hats, or at least most of them are. I was a cook. I was a restaurant critic. I was, for five years, a columnist who hosted a dinner party in my home and interviewed people over that meal. Uh, and then around 2015, I kind of found my area of expertise, or probably better to say, the area that I cared most about and ended up devoting all my energy into, and that is labor within the hospitality industry. And certainly like I've branched outward to the variety of endemic issues related to food. Um, but that's always been the, that's always been the itch that I had to scratch that I kept coming back to. Interesting. Labor, labor within the industry. Okay. And what's, is there, hmm, is there one thing about that you wish you had learned years ago? Well, you know, I came to writing from cooking. So I'd spent a number of years in kitchens. I, I think we all kind of suffer from that. Um, you know, I wish I knew now what I, uh, I wish I knew when I was younger what I know now, um, but in general, I, I mean, I'm what scientists call a dumb guy, which in layman's terms means I'm, I'm not very smart. So <laughs> it takes me time to learn things. And so it took me time to learn to do the job that I have now. <laughs> so even if you could go back in time and tell me a bunch of stuff, and say, this will really matter to you in the future. You should start working on this now. It's like, but I'm stupid. I need to figure out how to tie my shoelaces before I can mm -hmm. become a reporter. So, you know, for example, day one, as a restaurant critic, I got the job, my dream job. I'm very new to writing. I've been in the, in the kitchen for years and I got hired as a maternity leave replacement for the Toronto Stars restaurant critic. And I come in and they, they're, you know, they don't know me. I have no uh, uh, journalism experience, no journalism education. I mean, I, I've been writing for about a year uh, freelance, but they kind of took a, a chance on me. And uh, I, they threw me in the deep end. They called me one day and they said, Amy is in the hospital now. She's just gone into labor. Can you file a review tomorrow? So I really went in the deep end. And my first week we had a meeting where they talked story ideas. And I thought, oh, am I invited? But I'm just a kid. Like, well, <laughs> this is for grownups. 
And I went to the meeting and it was expected I would pitch a story. And uh, I pitched the story, I said, you know, it seems counterintuitive, but the fancier the restaurant, the less cooks are paid. And everyone in the room said, I don't think that's true. Uh, and I didn't, uh, you know, to answer your questions, I didn't have the understanding of how reporting is done mm -hmm. to validate that, to tell them, well, I'm going to take these steps. I'm going to talk to these people and do the research to present this case to write that story. I wasn't able to write that story for another five or six years when mm -hmm. I'd spent enough time doing my job that I'd learned the reporting chops. I'd learned how to gain sources. I learned how to research, to fact check, to make sure I knew what I was talking about, to present a variety of perspectives within a story, mm -hmm. at which point, I was able to finally write that story and do it justice. And that kind of took over the trajectory of my career. I'm really curious about the, the restaurant critic thing because I wasn't, uh, you know, what, what just, what, what's it like being a restaurant critic? I mean, I love Ratatouille and it's, it's the apex of the myth of the restaurant critic. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think it came out in 2004, 2005, something like that. So it's a few years before the global mm -hmm. economic collapse, which, you know, kind of coincides with the downfall of, of newspapers. And with it, the, uh, the, the critic having dominion over restaurants. You know, I grew up with this idea that a restaurant critic was this really magical creature who could create and destroy with their pen. If they said something nice, this restaurant was blessed and successful. And if they said something mean, they were through. They may as well close shop that day. And it's possible that that was true, certainly in a, in a time, you know, the era that I grew up where there was, you know, three or four channels on, on the TV. Um, and the majority of people got their news from a small handful of sources that the critic wielded a tremendous amount of power. But, uh, you know, as soon as the century turned, you had the, the dual engines of, um, you know, the element of anonymity faded away very quickly. You know, newspapers tried to hold on to the myth of it for a long time after it had gone. But once everybody had a camera in their phone by the mid 2000s, the idea that these critics who for 20 years were concealing their identities uh, it was nonsense. You know, everybody knew in the restaurant industry who they were, what they looked like. It was easy to take a pic of them and text it to all your restaurant buddies. But the newspapers still had an interest in that legend, you know, so they, they kept up with that bruise until maybe 2012, 2015, where one by one, all the remaining critics said, all right, I haven't been anonymous for a while. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, and the other factor was the crowdsourced review, right? The, uh, the rise of Chowhound and then Yelp and whatever is going to replace Yelp and the ability for everyone to have a voice, which is both good and bad. But for the restaurant critic, it was bad. You know, for the person who liked having monopoly on having an opinion, it was, uh, it was not, uh, it was the end of, of their, uh, their control. For me, I did it for two years. It was the job I dreamed of, uh, not even trying to do it. I've always not been an ambitious person. And as soon as I decided I wanted to write, I was like, if someone will let me write, you know, the description on the back of a can of soup, I'll consider myself a great success. So a year later, when I was a restaurant critic, it was really a dream come true. And I had 
that year been reading all of Ruth Reichel's books, primarily, you know, the ones about uh, her time as the restaurant critic for the LA Times and the New York Times. So, you know, when I remember reading the book in the bathroom, I think if I ever got to do this, even briefly, well, this is how I do it. She lays out the blueprint for what values you need to bring to it. And uh, when I got the opportunity, I, I did it like that. And despite the fact that, you know, in the middle of my tenure, the global economy collapsed and suddenly the restaurants that I was reviewing were empty um, in a way that can't even compare to the last year. What it's been like, it's like a pinprick. But at the time, uh, for me, it was, uh, it was quite mystifying how, what I should do and how I should react to the fact that you know, the restaurant industry was changing so rapidly around me in, in a way that we now kind of look back and say, oh, there's the golden age of this sort of small, casual, chef-driven restaurant. I was, I was new to the scene and we don't always see, um, we don't always see the arc of history as it's shaping around us. But as far as my experience goes, you know, it was like the time where they said, Corey, you get to be in the Fantastic Four, you get to be in the Avengers just for a little while, but it's going to be pretty memorable. Awesome. I, I really, I'm excited to, to get into your, your book a little bit. Um, so it, it's called The Next Supper, the end of restaurants as we knew them and what comes after. And, you know, this is uh, a, a great, a great tagline because it's, uh, or, or sub subtitle, uh, because it's no doubt a question that is burning in the minds of many. Uh, and I was really excited to talk to you as well, because you're, uh, you're, you seem to cut to the jugular when it comes to you know, issues in the industry that are, that are rampant, but, uh, you know, we, we just kind of sweep them under the rug, so to speak, um, you know, issues around staffing, you know, being mistreated and stuff like that. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to, um, I'd love to just hear a bit about your views on how, how you think the industry was broken, uh, or is broken, um, yeah, could you could you share share a bit about that with us? Sure, I, I think broken is a good word for it. Um, it depends on who you're talking to. Some people who were doing very well uh, would have said, "What are you talking about? Things were going great until this lousy pandemic." I, I would say broken in the sense that it was not a good system for the majority of people in it. And a lot of the people that you talk to within the restaurant industry aren't merely in it, but they, they felt locked in it. Uh, a lot of people, both front of house and back of house, who, regardless of how they came to it, often carried a feeling of being stuck. You know, If they were having second thoughts, unlike a lot of other industries, because there's no academic credentials required, um, for entry into the industry, often you've got people who are working for five or 10 years, and if they're considered getting out, they can't then say, well, I can always do something else with this degree, because there is no certificate. Or, or if they did go to cooking school, well, for me or you or anyone in the restaurant industry can say, actually, your, your years managing a group of people in a high-pressure environment qualifies you for many jobs. Uh, but they tend not to think of themselves that way. And job recruiters, I've heard, don't tend to see the value in mm -hmm. those skills. Uh, it was broken in the sense that, yes, like the traditional chef-driven restaurant was based on exploiting cooks who wanted to rise, who wanted to learn, 
uh, and you know, enabling this disparity of income between front of house and back of house where you could have people earning uh, through serving twice what the cooks are earning uh, and having an incredible conflict between what, what ends up being two classes of employees. You know, you have these staff meetings where you tell everyone we're a family or we're a team, we're, you, we're a unit, we all work together, except you people on that side of the room are motivated by money. You people are motivated on the other side of the room are motivated by artistic pursuits. But let's pretend we're a, a tight phalanx all working together like the military. And by the way, one of you is going to earn half as much as the other one. 20% of the revenue coming in is uh, exists in this nebulous gray zone. If it's not revenue, it's tips, even though really, you know, if you and I go to a restaurant, we spend $100, we tip 20%. We, we just, it's $120. That's the cost of the meal. Mm -hmm. The idea that like one group of employees says, I'm going to take that $20 off the top. Now, the rest of you figure out what to do uh, with the rest of it. You know, and that's just within the chef-driven sphere, which the way I structured the book is to sort of parcel that out between the virtual restaurants, the immigrant restaurants, the chain restaurants, full service, limited service, grocerants, et cetera, because each one suffers from a variety of different illnesses. And would you say it's uh, because of a combination of that, that comment of COVID and the, the illnesses that you, you, you just spoke to, is it that combination that has caused the, the, the so-called end of restaurants as we knew them? Well, you've got, uh, you've got those factors and then bringing up the other flank is the assault uh, on restaurants of all kinds by the third party delivery uh, industry. Um, you know, 3PD was a huge problem before and it was increasing at a rapid rate you know, starting in around 2014, 2015, um, something that people were complaining about back then, but few people understood. And up until the pandemic, I found that I was still kind of, uh, the reaction to sometimes me writing about those things was that I was a bit of a conspiracy theorist, uh, talking about the exorbitant um, commissions that the third party delivery companies ask of restaurants um, you know, the typical things I would hear was, no, that can't be true. I don't think they take that much or restaurants don't have to participate. They have a choice. Um, and the pandemic at least awakened a lot of the public's eyes to that. It made people aware that 3PD was asking for commissions higher than your average restaurant's margin, uh, that they didn't really have much of a choice of participating if the market share was being gobbled up. And certainly within the time of, uh, pandemic lockdowns, but based on where you were, restaurant had no revenue stream other than takeout and delivery. So they had to depend on this. And we started to see, you know, the, uh, uh, the temporary commission caps in a variety of US cities, uh, which have now extended into permanent commission caps that are now being uh, legally uh, argued against by these companies. Got it. So, so we have a trifecta. We have the, um, you know, the kind of general unsustainable practices and illnesses that were inherent in the industry uh, already. Uh, we then had the COVID comet and, and also the assault from uh, third-party delivery um, uh, as, as an industry. So, okay, so... And now you've got the fourth, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, the, the fourth army amassing as an assault on the traditional business model, which is a revolt from workers. 
Yes, staff. Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay, so all right, so we have a pretty uh, pretty juicy stage set here, uh, and your your book is called "The Next Supper: uh, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After." So, uh, first of all, before we get into the what comes after, and this will probably be uh, you'll probably uh, explain this, but I'm, I'm curious what inspired the title "The Next Supper." Well, I mean, the the lawyer rejected uh, my original title, which was. Uh, the original title was The New Adventures of Harry Potter, colon, by J.K. Rowling, the lady who wrote the other stories about Harry Potter. And the lawyer felt that th there could be some copyright infringement concerns. Uh, she used words like fraud um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and also said it didn't really tell the story that the book is trying to tell in the, in, in the title. So we... We went back to the chalkboard and we kicked some some ideas around and um i think i did a kind of a word salad with my editor and we we, we i think we just we wanted to focus on the idea of the future you know the idea of implying something was wrong has been wrong and we're, we're working towards something better which is um, a lot to get across in a title uh, I'm pretty happy with what we came up with and specifically because, you know, the goal from day one, even before the pandemic, talking with my editor, because, you know, the pandemic began like midway through this book. Hmm. Um, uh, but the conversation before the pandemic was, Corey, you, you bring a lot of anger to this story and, uh, you know, a lot of it's justified. But you also love restaurants. You, you wouldn't have been writing about restaurants for the last 10 years if you didn't. So remember that you're writing this book for people who love restaurants and who care about restaurants. Well, I, th I think it does. I think it's a very, um, I think it's a hopeful title. You know, uh, what, what comes after the next supper. And so, well, I, I'd love to get into that. I, I'm, what, what does come after? I like the word hopeful. I think there's reason to be hopeful. Um, you know, when we talk about the, all these forces that are surrounding restaurants, what I mean is that they are surrounding the old model of restaurants, the way that a lot of restaurants were run. All these forces are a threat to doing things the way we used to do them, which was inequitable. And you know, for me, the biggest danger right now to restaurants besides COVID and foreclosure and you know, imminent financial collapse if uh, foreclosures start resuming in your neighborhood is the gravity of the return to status quo. You know, After times of calamity or disaster, whatever it is, we all want the safety blanket of things returning to normal. Uh, but normal for the restaurant industry was not good. So I see hope in the sense that I mean, two big things that are happening right now are workers seeing their value and their power and diners giving a shit in ways that they didn't before. The, the, the power balance between restaurant workers and owners has shifted. Mm -hmm. Workers are more in demand than they ever were, so much so that while they may not be dictating terms, the long held attitudes uh, from owners of look, this is what we can afford to pay because we can only charge so much is shifting. 
I think there's an evolution happening with diners too, and just being aware of all these issues. They're just looking for answers. And unfortunately, you know, much like uh, when people started caring about where their, where their produce and where their beef comes from, the answers are rarely as simple as, is it organic? Is it local? There's more to it than that, but just, you know, caring is its own form of uh, uh, addiction. It's, once you start caring about something, it's very hard to turn it off. So once you start asking those questions, it's okay. Follow that. And I, I think there's more is going to come over. Uh, more is going to come over the next year in terms of the evolution of the restaurant time. Uh, awesome. I'd, I'd love to take a step back uh, to the uh, staffing challenges. Um, the, yeah. And I want to know what, what would you recommend a restaurant owner do today to begin to, uh, you know, shift, shift the tides? Um, like how can they, you know, how can they attract, you know, a strong team? Um, yeah. What, what would you, do you have any ideas, recommendations? Well, I of course have to remind you that I am not a restaurant manager, nor am I a doctor. But having spoken with enough owners, managers, uh, and employees, you know, the common issues are pay, time, respect, and atmosphere. Mm -hmm. you know, atmosphere and respect are a little bit amorphous and, and hard to define, and yet you know it when you see it. You know, mm -hmm. I did this column for about a year called Kitchen Temp. I wanted to call it Stage, but the newspaper said, nobody's going to know how to pronounce Stage. Stage. And, and the, the premise was like, hey, I used to be a cook. Why don't I go once a week and I'll cook in a different restaurant. I'll spend the day, I'll do a shift, mm -hmm. and I'll write about, you know, what the culture is like in that place. And, and the, the common thread was that no two restaurants are alike, you know, like whatever that um, Dostoevsky quote is about, you know, all happy families are the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. Um, you know, everyone is dysfunctional in their own way, um, but I could tell on the rare occasions where I was in a restaurant where I felt like these people like being here. They want to be, you know, I mean, a, a good telltale sign is when you ask the cooks, like, where do you see yourself like, a year or five years? They're like, here, I want to be here. There's so much to learn here. They treat me well. They pay me well. Great. Um, but it's pretty rare and yet you can you can tell when you see it you know i know in one restaurant where everybody was happy one thing that everybody did and at first i found annoying and then i thought this is so it's such a delightful affectation every person who began a conversation with me within 60 seconds of the conversation as soon as there was a gap enough for them to say it they'd say have you had a cup of coffee can i get you a cup of coffee it was like it was the chef or owner's rule you constantly have to offer each other coffee which Nobody needs to drink that much coffee, but that act of service and being deferential towards everybody else was such a nice way to show everyone else that you cared, you know? Cause I could see it, I saw other people doing it. They weren't just saying, oh, let's ask the reporter if he wants a cup of coffee. Like they would do this for each other. It was so sweet and it's so rare. So, you know, you can't, either you're a, a decent person who treats people well, or you're an asshole. It's kind of hard to teach an asshole to be a good manager. You can certainly set in place HR rules. Um, you know, I've been told like every restaurant needs to have, a, you know, a, a handbook, a guide for how work is done. But unless somebody's actually enforcing those rules, they're not, they don't have any meaning. You know, in most of Canada, 
labor complaints, you know, the, nobody investigates the way health uh, inspections happen uh, by surprise every three or four months. Mm -hmm. you know, they're only done by complaint and very few people complain. But that's the atmosphere, that's the mental health stuff. I think we need to change our attitudes about alcohol and the job and everybody drinks at the end of the shift. People want to go home in the end of the shift. You know what I want at the end of my shift instead of a beer? I want cleaners to come in to clean the kitchen. I don't want to stay for an hour and a half mm -hmm. after the end of my 10 to 12 hour shift mm -hmm. to put a, a metal tray up above the deep fire so that my clogs won't burn when I step up to scrape the hoods. Didn't I work long enough today? Yep. You know, like what is my time worth or not worth that you expect me to do this, much less expect the kitchen to be spotless? Um, you know, then it comes down to the, the really um, tangible items like money. You, to pay people money, where's it going to come from if you don't have it in the margins, right? Mm -hmm. The argument for a long time is you can't come from the diners. Diners already think food costs too much, and yet that third rail has been tested in the last year. Everybody's raising prices, whether they're doing a little now or a lot. You know, Amanda Cohen in New York just said raising prices 30% across the board. I will be able to pay staff $25 an hour. That's 25 US. Most people are going to do it a little more incrementally than that, but she at least is being transparent and saying, hey, diners, my diners care about these things. I'm going to put that to the test and we'll find out, right? In six months, if overall revenue and profits are down, we'll know that this is too high for customers. We'll see that tested. But the other thing that owners can do to balance out higher wages is smaller menus. Slash those menus. Mm -hmm. You know, the compulsion to have something for everyone. I understand it in a market, in, in, our, in a market that I would argue is oversaturated, you know, with too many big chains mm -hmm. that have too many locations, with too many seats. Uh, your rest, your, your medium-sized restaurant feels like it needs to compete with the 200 seat Montana's or Kelsey's or whatever it is. Um, but what you actually want are regulars, right? You want the regulars who come back uh, because they care about you. They care about what you do. And while the big chains had, you know, lawyers and executives who could devote time to finding efficiencies and tax loopholes, they didn't have communities that uh, cared about preserving them. Totally love that. And you know, we've we've been consulting with with bars on their cocktail menus well before the pandemic, and uh, we we always recommended very similar approach, uh, you know, um, call, calling the menu uh, because it also, it also is an overwhelming experience for guests. And there's that whole, there's the paradox of choice that comes in where, you know, that you have so many options and you just feel anxiety and overwhelmed uh, over what to, what to pick. So I think, I think that's, that's sage, uh, a sage approach. And um, let me ask you about that because, you know, of course we're stymied, right? When you go into the, um, you know, I've, the, the most I ever saw was at one restaurant called House of Gourmet, this place in Chinatown near where I used to live. And they actually had multiple, they had three different menus. And between the three menus, they had 600 items. So obviously, paralysis of choice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can you possibly go and say like, let me look over this menu and decide what to eat? In all likelihood, you go there once every two weeks and you order the same thing all the time. And on the other end, you've got you know, your incredibly small, let's say like wine bar that has eight items mm -hmm. to which some people may go and it's like, I've had all this or, 
there isn't something like, or whatever the thing is that you're looking for. What do you think the item for a sort of 40 to 50 seat restaurant? What do you, how many items do you think there should be on the menu? What's the magic number? Well, on a, on a cocktail menu, uh, sure. for example, I would say, I would say ideally eight, eight cocktails, no more than, than 10, uh, on, on a food menu. I, so I, I, here I'll, I'll speak as a, as a consumer going into that restaurant. I'm, I'm candidly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the right person to ask because, um, I, I'm actually very basic when it comes to, 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 to food. I, I love food, but I'll, I'll generally defer to the expertise of, of, whoever is serving me and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just ask them what, it, what it is they, you know, they, they'd recommend and I'll mo most of the time just go with what they recommend. So I, I'm, I'm actually often perplexed by folks who like my partner, she, she loves like, just like looking over restaurant menus. Um, so, and, and I'm, I'm just not that, you know, when like the other thing I think for many people is that they don't, like when, and when it comes to these big, huge menus, people don't want to have to work to like, they don't want to like the cognitive load of it. They don't want to, you know, read a huge menu. They want something that's like, that is well-structured, I think, and easy to scan and easy to consume. Uh, so uh, when you ask the question, a 40, 50 C restaurant, my, my hunch is an ideal number of, of items on that menu is probably, probably like, Eight, eight to fifteen. What do you think? One. We should have one thing. One thing. One thing. That may be a little extreme. Yeah, eight to fifteen sounds the right. Sounds like the right range. It shouldn't go above twenty. At a certain point, like your mise en place for that many things, it takes up too much space. It requires another body, more, more space on the prep table, and the bottom line is like requires people to come in another hour another two hours early to get it all ready figure out what your best sellers are what sustained customers or what those niche items are the, you know it doesn't sell that much but people are you know the, the, there's a core clientele that comes in regularly for it mm -hmm. and uh and do it in higher volumes i mean i'm not I'm, this is not radical that, that what i'm suggesting as you said you were advocating for this two years ago yeah, I, I, it's all about like optimization, right? And and it's similar. It reminds me of I remember working at a bar, and uh, you know we closed at one a.m. and I was like, "Fuck that!" Let's like, you know, after after eleven p.m. at night, the the quality of clientele begins to dwindle. We get you know more more drunk people. Uh, they spend less, and the staff are just un like they're just less happy. So why don't we forego those, you know, at least an hour and have a happier, more energized staff where we don't have like this long, long night, you know, ahead of us every single time that, that one hour makes a big difference to us. And, sure. you know, I mean, the returns are like, you're, you're going to get greater returns from your people than the, the, you know, marginal, you know, revenue you'll get over that one hour. And so it's just like, oh, that's and what I'm able to mm -hmm. convince the owners of that perspective. Yeah. You know, like I may not be someone who obsesses over menus, um, but I do love to obsess over those little optimizations because I think that the the game for a restaurant owner is really like where can you where can you add incremental revenue? Where can you add incremental returns? 
and you know what is the cost benefit of it and and so that's really fun it's like a fun game and um and uh yeah so so yeah i i Corey, i, I want to respect your time here i i have one more area i'd like to explore with you before we uh before we wrap up here and that is i'm really curious about your perspective on how the whole third party delivery thing how that will how do you see that evolving I'm not going to make a prediction because I'll be wrong no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, I can't be shy about it or, or hide it. I'm fairly anti third party delivery. Mm -hmm. um, my, you know, my recommendation is delete your apps. You, you don't need them. Mm -hmm. um, this is for consumers, not restaurants, you know, for consumers, just delete your apps. You were somehow able to eat without gnawing your hand off pre 2015. And I don't, I don't remember anyone ever telling me, Oh, I can only get pizza and Chinese and Thai and Korean and Vietnamese. I can't get from this one spot. I wish I could order from this one spot. Um, the, the apps and the tech companies behind them created or deepened our culture of convenience and, and created, I mean, a really huge advertising win for them, the perspective that we couldn't get along without them, that they were like essential for us, either getting food on the table for our family or working the you know 14 hour days that we apparently all need to work to survive in our modern world. Uh, but it's not true. Um, you know, I once I started really looking at them, I just very quickly said, I don't want anything to do with these apps. Uh, I mean, I tested them all out for, for, for various stories I was working on. I was like, I don't care for this. And uh, if I really want food from a restaurant, I'll go pick it up uh, either on my bicycle or now that I own a car, it's obviously a lot easier. And despite what I heard for years, Corey, you don't have kids, you know, it's like, you'll be so busy. I have a daughter now and yeah, I'm busy. I have no free time. But if I really want food from a restaurant, oh, I'll go get it. It's, it's relatively uh, straightforward. You know, the 10 companies that were operating a few years ago have already consolidated into a pretty small number of companies. And like everything else, it'll come down to a duopoly. You know, mm -hmm. it'll be Uber plus whoever else they've bought times DoorDash or Just Eats. I uh, can't remember actually if one of those owns the other three. I mean, it's, you know, it's midday. So who knows what mergers and acquisitions have taken place by this point. But you've just seen this endless series of buyouts where they all, you know, they buy their competition. They're funded by venture capital, which ultimately has subsidized the cost of delivery. So the consumer hasn't seen it, which has been a key plank in getting people addicted to the convenience of delivery. Most of us who've gotten used to ordering three times a week from these companies haven't seen the cost because you know, these companies that are valued at billions of dollars have just had the venture capital say, here's hundreds of millions of dollars, spend this so that the customer doesn't see what it costs until you have control of the market, then we'll charge what is actually necessary to make a profit, which most of these companies have yet to do. And that's the one thing I try to keep hammering home to people like the majority of these companies still don't make money despite being valued in the billions of dollars and having taken over a huge percentage of the restaurant industry. Love it. Well, Corey, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and taking the time. Uh, is there, is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't? 
Uh, I don't think so. I just apologize for being so shy. I know it took a lot to get me going and be opinionated, but I, I hope I came out of my shell eventually. No, so it was a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And anytime you want to go another round, I'm happy to, particularly that, you know, the third party delivery zone and the ghost kitchens, they're a constantly evolving story with whether it's, uh, you know, the big supermarkets uh, getting involved in ghost kitchens or cities being sued by Uber Eats, like that's, that's in the news every day. So I think that's a conversation we all need to keep having. I appreciate uh, you giving me the time to talk about my work and my book. My pleasure. Uh, where, uh, so, so the book is called The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants As We Knew Them and What Comes After. Uh, where, where should people go to get that book and where can they connect with you? Wherever it is you go to buy books, whether it's uh, uh, Uber, Uber Eats or Postmates or Amazon or uh, Indigo, uh, go to corymints.ca. Uh, and I've got links there for uh, all the places you can pre-order the book, which will be out mid-November of this very year, 2021. Awesome, Corey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Guest Getter. I'm your host, Kyle Guilfoyle. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, you can head over to guestgetter.co to check out the resources in this episode's show notes and sign up for our weekly newsletter. That is it for today. We'll see you next time.